You will certainly get your money's worth today on the Corey Truax Show. Of course, the show is free. We're going to talk faith and reason, some disagreement without being disagreeable. We're going to start there on today's Corey Truax Show. Welcome into this edition of the Corey Truax Show. It is good to have you with us on Christian Talk 660 or over on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud.com. We're over on Anchor now. Lots of different places to listen. Wherever you are listening is highly appreciated. I mentioned on the show here recently, I want to have more discussions with people with whom I disagree, primarily because I think we as Americans are terrible at talking to each other. We're really bad at hearing something we disagree with and not freaking out. And so I want to get more and more people on the show to model how to do that healthily, uh, but also share some information and uh, and prepare you for for conversations. Uh, Even get this, even on the internet, that you might have a talk on the internet and be nice to somebody. Uh, And so uh, I'm going to do that this week on one of the the big issues. If you don't know me, my name is Corey Truax. I say here my tagline is securing the blessings of liberty since 1986, but I also have that role at Beechwood Church in Greenville, where I'm an elder there. We're going through a sermon series in Acts right now, by the way. Beachwood Church, 1030 Sunday mornings at Greenville High School. It's where we meet. We'd love to have you. So I want to talk about faith and religion and we'll have one of those discussions. So we're going to do that today with a student from Clemson University. Uh, studies neuroscience there. Studies math. I just learned. Changed his major eight times. Uh, has well-versed in lots of academic uh, settings. Uh, and gets and because of that debate background, I think has a, a good ability just to talk through some of these issues of faith and belief and we're going to do that today with Mr. Nathan McDowell. Hello, sir. Happy to be here. I'm glad you did it. So uh, you did grow up, I think, similar background to me. I, I grew up in what I called professional Christianity. My dad was a missionary in West Africa. Um, so, But as you started to rethink faith, what were some of those, or just if you just want to start with one, one of those things that made you go, huh, I don't know. I don't know if I think that anymore. And something you might even challenge a believer to go, hey, have you thought about this that way? Yeah, so when I look back on it now, it seems like I was always heading towards atheism in some ways just because of how my personality was. Obviously, I think there's a lot of hindsight bias there, but I think there were two main stages where I started to struggle with my belief, and the first one would be kind of more of a rational phase, and the second one being the spiritual phase. So I I think the first thing that struck me was trying to reconcile things like the problem of evil or the inerrancy of Scripture and things of that nature. Um and yeah, if you want to delve into those yeah, in more detail. I'll, I'll start right there on the problem of evil. I, I've said for a long time that the number one, uh, the, like the, the objection to Christianity that Christians need to not freak out about and not get mad at people on is the problem of evil or suffering. Uh, that's a totally, that's a fair one. The uh, same way I've said for the secularist, the biggest, the biggest challenge you have is Jesus, getting over the, the Jesus account. Well, for the Christian, the biggest thing to reconcile is why suffering? Uh, and so I have I have some thoughts on that, but develop that more. When you when you thought about the problem of suffering, this is why it challenges my idea of faith or belief. Yeah. So firstly, there's definitely a human element to the problem of suffering. Just a lot of people go through really challenging experiences that I think makes it hard for them to like reconcile that with a perfectly loving God. But for me, I personally try and stay away from that. Just think about it in a rational way because it's supposed to be like a deductive logical proof that Christianity is impossible. And so because um, I think you kind of get lost in a discussion of, well, we don't understand the discrepancy that exists between God's standards and human standards. So what I try to focus on is I think God 
says explicitly there are some things that he's just he's not happy about sin for example is obviously something that god is dissatisfied with and so if you have a being you know the usual way it's formulated is you can't have someone who's all powerful who's all good and still have evil in the world is the best way i like to think about it is evil defined as primarily human suffering right or is it or is the because i think what you might have been uh going to there was not necessarily. It might not necessarily be human suffering. So are you? So define it for me. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I try and avoid that conception because I try and just define it as evil is whatever you know. God being a perfectly good being, as defined by Christianity, doesn't like. So sin and things like that. And I think that human suffering would not necessarily constitute an evil, although it feels very evil to us. You know, I think I think it's better because we can agree on more if we hone it just into there are things that happen in this world that a good God considers evil that he does not like, sinful things. Okay, so now I'm intrigued. I've not heard this train of thought before. And so the the consistent, the one you would consider to be the consistent God, being in, uh, keeping rational consistency, if a God is all good uh, and hates sin, then the world would have no sin. Right. That is the, the construction. All right, so let me, let me think through this just for a second, because, again, it's the first time I've ever heard it, because most folks usually do the human suffering thing, which, is, which really leads to why is human suffering bad, which I think is why you maybe skipped it. Right. right? I mean, well, from a secular perspective, why do we care about human, uh, human suffering? So that, that purpose of, I would just give you these. Uh, I'm going to use some human suffering, but also just sin generally. For, for the Christian perspective, and what I want to challenge you to is not to believe it, but to say, well, yeah, I could see that to be irrational. Not irrational, but that's a rational way to see it. That with fin- finiteness, where there is uh, a lack of perspective through history and time, that the way I, we formulate it theologically is God using sin sinlessly. So God throughout time allowing sin for some purpose that we don't actually get. So I'll just give you some biblical examples here. Uh, Paul in late in Acts, he goes, he's on trial several times, and he always wanted to go to Rome to preach the gospel. Uh, he gets tried by the Jews, tried by Felix, tried by Festus, tried by Agrippa, and I would consider those to all be bad things, right? He's in prison a ton, but he gets to go to Rome in the end. Uh, or even jo- Joseph, uh, he says to his brothers at the end of that story, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Even outside the human suffering, these were sins, lies told about Paul, slander against him, slander against Joseph. And so just uh, let me formulate it, and you tell me, be, you can be honest, if you, just, if you would say, well, I don't agree, but it's a, at least a rational formulation, right? So that, yep, there is sin in the world, God hates sin, but he is using it for some larger purpose than himself that I, I just don't know and will be revealed later. Is that at least a rational formulation? I think so. And I think also adding a layer to that would be, I'm definitely sympathetic to the argument as well, that we are relational beings that understand things through contrast. You know, So not only is God using it for good, but also it enhances our conception of the good, that only by experiencing evil and experiencing suffering can we truly understand things like goodness and happiness. So I see that side of it as well. My issue when we go there would be that I think you're imposing human limitations on what God can do. So what you mentioned, when I hear that, I instantly think that that is a sort of trade-off, right? So God is allowing some sin in the world so that he gets 
a greater benefit in some other way. And my issue with that is always going to be when you have this conception of a being that is all-powerful, that transcends human limitations, I don't think they should be subject to those trade-offs. So whatever good that you're talking about, God using sin in a sinless way, using sin for a greater good, either he could have done it without sin, and I think that would have been a, a better way to do it, or he couldn't have done it, and then I think that contradicts this notion that you have an, an all-powerful God. Okay, um, so let me I'll press on that a little bit uh, in this way. I'm trying to gather my thoughts as I go here. The, there is this, so the biblical concept, I hate to quote scripture at you, but the uh, God's thoughts higher than our thoughts, ways higher than our ways. What I'm trying to get to is that for the, for the Christian who actually does presuppose, has a presupposition that you don't join in on, and that's, yeah, that's fine. The presupposition, there's a God of the universe that's not like me. Uh, the number one word God uses about himself in the Bible is holy. He most, he most says about himself, I'm not like you. I'm separate from you. That, his, his logic for allowing sin before he eventually does it. Eventually, that's what we believe. We, we believe eventually there will be none. He's going to solve that. But it's not, a, it's not an irrational thing to... Th- to accept, yep, there is there is sin there that that God is outside of me. So I think you tell me if I'm wrong. The way I'm hearing you is that's that sounds to you like me putting a human limitation on God. Is that is that how you yeah? That? In the sense that like it, it sounds like it's basically he had to use sin to get what he wanted. Or yeah, so I would say chose. Just, okay, just chose whatever reason he did something that I don't know and I'm totally comfortable with that it's a comfortable it's a comfortable thing and again not trying to get you to agree but to do this so for the Christian who believes that God is all wise whatever he did was the was the was the wise thing it can be disagreed upon but at least a rational formulation of the sentences does that make sense right and that and that is fine with me up until the point where God's unhappy with things, right? So that, cause, because, and that's why I tried to hone it in there because God does talk about how there's sin in the world and God gets angry and there are things that God doesn't like and God, we have to be separated from God for all eternity if we're sinful and we're not forgiven by Jesus because of that. And obviously I think those are things that he doesn't appreciate. And so I just kind of think either he had to have that there for a greater good, like I said, that, and that would be a limitation, or he didn't have to have that there, and he, for some reason, chose to have it in a way where there are these aspects of it that aren't good, that he doesn't like, and that would seem to make him evil by the standard that he set for goodness, which obviously doesn't include sin or separation from him or anything of that nature. Gotcha. I guess one more thought on this, and you uh, respond to it. It's this, I don't have to have the last word on okay. it. That the, the meta-narrative of the Christian faith, at least. I don't. I can't speak for the other narratives. The meta narrative ends up being quite the rational one, and not a have to, but a, a choose to. For the beauty of the story, it's such a beautiful story. It's been copied in literature like crazy. Uh, but the the fundamental problem that we, not, it's not a problem for God. God's God solved it. This idea of well, God God made man to be in rec, in relationship with Him. Man broke it through sin, but God is still, here's quote, the, quote, the quote problem. I don't mean it to be a problem. The quote problem is, but God can't be around sin, and so he's going to have to find a way to reconcile the two. And the way he does that is, well, I'll, I'll be just. I'll punish sin. I'm going to punish sin on Jesus and then be reconciled to man. And so this meta-narrative, the big one, is a one that makes sense to me, but we can reach impasse on that. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, it's part of these conversations. Uh, it's just, yeah, that totally makes sense to me. I would just ask you the question, when someone says, well, yeah, that makes sense that God, for the beauty of it, for whatever reason he wants, because he doesn't have to give me one, would go, 
that's the way. That's the way I've, I've decided to, to run the affairs of Earth. At least it's in a fair formulation. Yeah. And I okay. guess and my and my thought is always, you know, if you're an all powerful being, you can have you can have all those things. You know, none of the the evil and the toil and the pain and the sin is necessary to to achieve that goodness. Okay. Um, all right. So we got we got about a minute here. Um, any others on because I have some things I want to bring to you about the problem of evil, just from a secular perspective. Uh, and actually, that's that's what I'll do going into this break. So you can go ahead and start formulating thoughts. Uh, you you specifically did over you, you jumped over the idea of human suffering as as a problem, which I thought, by the way, is wise beyond your years that you've already identified that. Uh, but if you are willing to go down that road, just taking a look at for most secularists, they don't argue that they argue why would God allow this evil thing to happen to a person? And so I do want to get into with you why, from a secular perspective, do we uh, why can you how can you call anything evil? What is the basis by which I know Sam. Harris has written some on this. I think Sam Shermer has written some on this. Uh, but I want to get your thoughts on that. Does that sound good to you? Sounds good. Okay, so we're going to be back with more uh, of this edition of the Corey Truax Show in just a second. Remember, you can share the show, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. Find me, Corey Truax. You can find it there. And if you would, be so kind as to share the show. We'll be back with more with Mr. Nathan McDowell in just a moment. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. Thank you for sticking with us. We're going to try to do more of what we're doing right now here on Christian Talk 660 or over on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud.com, all the different places you can listen, is have conversations with people with whom I don't agree to make sure we're modeling a healthy disagreement. And we've been talking with Mr. Nathan McDowell from Clemson University this morning. Hello, sir. Um, welcome back. And so I j we just talked about the problem of evil for the Christian. Um, and I, I want to talk about the problem of evil for the secularist as well. I think and I might have one more apologetic point I want to make regarding the problem of evil for Christianity. So here's been my, my big issue for secularists on the problem of evil. is How do you know what's evil and how do you know what's not evil? Yeah, so I actually have a big problem with secularists in this regard too. And I think Ooh. that if you do not believe in a religion, you do just have to discard the notion of objective morality altogether. And so I know Sam Harris, he makes a lot of attempts to try and bring an atheist an atheistic objective morality, and I just don't think you could do that. I think basically what he says, think about a world where everyone's suffering all the time, we all agree that that's bad, so that's objectively what's bad. And I think, firstly, I don't know if everyone would agree with that, we can't really tell, and if everyone would agree with that, still that's you somehow you he has this implicit assumption that he slides in there that universal agreement produces morality which there's no reason to right. believe that no necessarily right so i think i think we probably agree in that respect that without a god figure a divine entity there is not an objective morality that and which, which is i guess i'm so intrigued by this because i mean this in these conversations i've had with a lot of secularists in my life no one's ever said that <laughs> no one's ever actually said well yeah of course you can't have an objective morality without something outside of the natural order declaring that which is moral and immoral. Because what Harris tries to do, and Shermer is, it is a human flourishing argument, or it's a majority argument, and then you just get into what I've called the infinite regression of why. So, well, murder's bad. Why? Because we should have stability. Why is stability good? Uh, because it helps people flourish. Why is human flourishing good? And you, you keep coming down to that, eventually just, there's not one. There's just not an objective. And so I'm, I'm interested now, does it bother you? Does that, that part of the, the secularist worldview, is it a bothersome thing? So 
I don't like it. I would like for there to be an objective morality, certainly, but something that I've said to a lot of Christians in talking to them is that the inconvenience of the truth doesn't make it any less true. And I think that a lot of atheists, you know, they tend to come from what they would consider to be this just rational perspective, you know, um, kind of in, you know, Marx called religion the opiate of the masses, and they criticize Christians for just like doing what feels good or whatever and not accepting that there's not a religion because it's hard. But then in the same turn, they go and they can't accept that without a God, there is no objective morality. And then they try, and in my opinion, because it feels better to make it more appeal, um, to have more appeal, they abandon um, their commitment to rationality and then try and impose this now, objective now you morality. Really have, you have me very curious. Like, I'm getting to Thomas Hobbes, I'm getting to Rousseau in my head, that wondering, so what, uh, in organizing like in a society, what do you, how, how do you do it? Because so, so, sometimes it's utilitarian. Is that what you do there is just... Well, what's best for the most people, then? Is that how we organize society? Yeah, so I think that ultimately it's what we find to be—I mean, there are things that we, we all like. Like, we like society, probably, most for the most part. We like for there to be norms and laws and rules. And yes. so I think that the way to frame it is just that there are things that we agree on that we can work together. That doesn't give us any notion of objective morality, but um, there are— goals that we just happen to share in common okay. that we can work towards you know that that big one of these big themes for me is can you see that the other side if you give them all their presuppositions can you see that's a rational train of thought that's a totally rational train of thought to me with all the presuppositions the one other thing i wanted to get to on problem of evil for quote my side and then i want to get into the inerrancy and in scripture part that you brought up earlier um is I want to ask you, do you find this formulation, even denying the presuppositions, at least a, f a rational formulation? So the, the big uh, argument I get from most secularists on the problem of evil is uh, God does mean things in the Bible. Uh, he punishes people meanly. And so uh, the argument I give back to them is this. If you punch me in the face, it's not a big deal because I'm not a big deal. But if you go punch Henry McMaster in the face, it's a big deal because he's a big deal. And so there's this rationality on, on the, the problem of evil that when you have, uh, when you take it to account who you're offending, all punishments are fine. All punishments are rational because you don't know who you've offended the same way in the earthly realm, the more important the person it is you, uh, you offend, the bigger the, uh, the punishment. So is that a rational formulation to you of how a Christian would understand it? Yes, yes. I think that's a rational okay. formulation. Um, all right, so moving on to the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, this makes me think that Bart Ehrman's about to come up in this conversation. Is Bart Ehrman about to come up in this well, conversation? Well, I was, I just, yes, I think of Bart Ehrman and Mike Lacona and their debates and, yeah, things oh, of that yeah. nature. Yeah. I, you know, those were some good ones. Yeah. Okay, interesting stuff. Okay, so um, again, coming from this background growing up uh, with the Christian faith, you start reexamining the Bible, what we say we have for all bases of truth, life and godliness, and you come to the Bible and find what to be troublesome? Well, the problem of evil was a big one. Another big one was predestination versus free will and how the Bible at different places seems to support both of those. And in my opinion, they're logically incompatible. And then just there are certain scriptural contradictions. Some small things like King Azahiah, I think it is, I might not be saying that right, but I think at one point in scripture, it says he's 22 and when he became king. And at another point, it says he's 42. Or f okay. And that's just like a contradiction. Or for example, things that seem historically inaccurate. For example, the census. The census that I think for Christians would be a fulfillment of prophecy that speaks to, you know, the reliability of Scripture. And for me, a census that seems to be made up to get Jesus in the right place. So the Luke 2 census. Yes. Um, so that uh, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be right. taxed. Every, and so the writers of the gospel, what you would say, what you claim there is 
uh, we, we got to get Jesus to Bethlehem. Right. Because the prophecy says Bethlehem, and so therefore in the narrative we're going to ride away to get him to Bethlehem. There's that. And I believe that for a few reasons. One is that there's no record of the census. Um, that historically they can find outside through. the right. Bible. Historically okay. outside the Bible, right. So there's also that level of are the Gospels historically reliable or not, and if you believe that they are, then there is a record. It's in the Gospels. But, right. Um, yeah, no record outside the Gospels. Right. That uh, that that census occurred, and it seemed like it would be, particularly since it was an unusual census, a census that was never known to occur, which was one where you had people going to the place of their ancestry, which there was there's no recorded place where we ever see a census like that occurring, where they just didn't um, go to where they lived. They're going to where their ancestors were, which for me feels like an obvious attempt to like you know we're trying to get Jesus, we're trying to get Jesus to Bethlehem because that's the purpose to fulfill the prophecy. So that's okay. one of the big ones for me. So the, um, I, th- I don't think that's technically an argument from absence. Like there's, there, there doesn't seem to be anything else, and so therefore it's not true. I don't think you're doing that, but I, I don't know. I would ask, I guess I would ask this. Why? So the, the writers come together on that census, on that narrative of Jesus, and decide to lie about it. Why? Do you, have, do you have a theory on that? Well, so, I mean, I, th- I think it was the fulfillment of prophecy, in oh. my opinion. That's so what I was saying. Like, the, the purpose of that was to get Jesus in the right place so that it was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and show that he was the Messiah. So it's Jewish writers knowing Jewish prophecy and wanting to fit Jesus into the mold of the Jewish prophecy. Potentially, yes. Okay. And so... I. Because, I know this is just a theory, man. I don't want to press you on a theory right, yeah. on, on this. I, don't, I won't spend much time, much longer on it. I guess my question is that th- there is just that, why would they want to? So w- what is the incentive of somebody to, I'm going to fit Jesus into this Messiah thing, and what do they get out of it? Yeah, so I do think you know it's, it gets in messy territory when we start trying to speculate about sure, the motives okay. of people. But I, I got in messy, uh, messy territory to talk about it. But yeah, so I, I think... What I would say is they were fo- ostensibly, this is the best explanation I could come up with, is that they were followers of Jesus, potentially. They believed what he had to say, and they just wanted to demonstrate that. And so they, you know, okay. they showed it. I have one response on that, and then I wanted to get into uh, some of the things on the gospel. So one of my, I promise this won't take long, 60 full seconds, I'll leave this to be. With the suffering that Jesus followers so with, with that suffering that, that t- took place after his ascension, the it seems un- it does seem an irrational thing to me that they would write down stuff that's only going to get them worse treatment and nothing good. Does you, you see that at all? Like I, I think of Peter, like I could keep writing this or tell Mark to write this. I think of Matthew, I could keep writing this and get in trouble for it, which I already know is false. Like it's a lie that I know is a lie, and I'm not getting anything good out of it. Or did you think they might? They thought, well, maybe I will get something good out of it. I certainly see that. Um, but I, for me, the core of it is not. I don't. I don't know why. But I think there. You know, there are an infinite number of possible reasons why. But the key is, and this is why I don't necessarily think it's an argument from absence because I see what you're saying. I guess technically it is an argument from absence. But I think the the issue is is that it contradicts 
everything that is present in such a strong way. And that's why I try, I try to differ it from a contradiction because it's not a logical contradiction, but it, it's an argument from probability. What would there be a probability that this census that's having people go to a place of their ancestry, which has never occurred before, and you're, I mean, you're going to have mass migration. You, know, you would think it would be a big deal. What is the probability that no one would write that down and that you would have a census that was unlike anyone ever recorded history? Sure. I just think that it's, it's low. Also on the, um, so the, contra- the, the scriptural contradictions, some of those I have been able to go back uh, and reconcile uh, that different, ca- it's, it's a different character that's being talked about. Um, so there was one about, uh, one biblical character in Chronicles recorded as having this many sons versus this many sons, and I was able, to, I've been able to reconcile some of those, not all. My, my big theme on that is, there, there seems to be a an inverse argument, that where there are contradictions, we make the assumption that there is uh, a low level of trust. What should mean also, where there is unity, there should be a high level of trust. And so when we get all of the other, quote, I'm, gonna, let me, I'm not going to concede the point there's contradictions in the Bible, but let's, for the sake of this argument, say they're right. right. We do come to the Gospels, and we have total unity, uh, even in there in Acts, on a whole bunch of people testifying to the core part of the Bible. Because the Bible's not about those kings and how many sons they had or how old they were. These are all really tangential to the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible being uh, Jesus born of a virgin, living a perfect life, satisfying God, dying on the cross to take the wrath of God, resurrecting. So when you have that kind of unity over the resurrection, the part of the Bible that actually matters, like the part that is the core uh, the core of the Christian message, how do you react to that unity? Right. right. So I do think that um, the unity should be treated differently. But bringing in Mike Lacona here, you know, I'm assuming you've seen his debates with Bart Ehrman. One of the things that always runs through my mind when I'm watching them is that I think Lacona does a good job of arguing that the Gospels are historically reliable. I also think that he sets the bar so low that it makes me not trust history that much altogether as an entire discipline. So let me explain that. So there are, the Bible is a lot more historically accurate than many other documents. That is very true. The issue is that the other documents are the best explanation that we have. So I might accept that most of what Plutarch said probably wasn't true. But also, his explanation, even if it only has a 2% probability of being true, is more likely than any other explanation we have. So I'm willing to accept that on the basis that it's the best explanation we have, but I, I would never live my life on it you know, and apply it to there. So what I would say to that is I view historical evidence as a whole as a very low bar. And then I think weighted in contrast to that would be the fact that you're making a absolutely extraordinary claim, you know, which is that a man came and was God's son and raised from the dead. So when you take those two things in conjunction, um, it undermines me as uh, personally believing that okay. unity okay. you're talking about. Gotcha. Um, so I can. I, what's striking me is I don't know. Maybe I underestimated because I'm an old guy and you're a young guy. Maybe I underestimated. I, you have said three things I've never heard before, um, and that's I, I do. I read a lot. I watch a lot of debates. I, I could, I've read everything Michael uh, uh, Dawkins has ever read, uh, ever written, and so to, uh, having to go back and restate it so I can make sure I know what you're saying. So the the unity surrounding uh, here's how the Christian thinks it should go: 
<laughs> about to tear up some apologetics <laughs> here. Uh, we think it should go like this. Well, if you trust the documents of Western civilization, which are less reliable than the Bible, and the Bible says Jesus resurrected, then you should obviously think Jesus resurrected. What you're saying is, I don't really trust all those Western, Western civilization documents. Is that where you are? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly where I am. I think that the, the method of history for yielding truth is remarkably limited as a whole. Okay. And so the, te- the testability of, it, it's just hard to test at all, a historical right. claim. Okay. I have one more uh, thought on this, and I feel like I've lost some thoughts because I'm not taking notes. We're just, st- we're just sitting here talking. Was uh, the, the movement after Jesus, because again, I, I think the most compelling argument for the secularist is the problem of evil. I think the most compelling argument for Christianity is Jesus. The movement that was so opposed by religious leaders and governmental leaders after Jesus resurrects. What is your explanation for that existing and then growing and becoming what it is today? So this gets into the territory where I don't think that my lack of human understanding matters necessarily. So let me try and put this in a more precise way. Yeah, I, I, I guess I don't think that my lack of explanation for something necessarily affects okay. the truth value, but I, I agree that it is certainly a remarkable set of circumstances that probably wouldn't happen if it wasn't true. I, I agree okay. with that statement. But I get, you're, you make a great point. Remarkability is not a truth claim. There is not uh, because something is unique doesn't make it. Uh, I, I, I what you're yeah, saying. and I just okay. I just try. I think it's dangerous territory when my human inability to come up with an explanation starts affecting the truth value of things because that's just me being a limited human. But I will say I do think there are some things about Christianity that do make it unique in terms of spreading. Um, so I think that it is far less legalistic than a lot of religions were previously. I think it is a lot more appealing in that it doesn't, there are obviously laws, but you know, especially after Jesus Christ, there's a large shift into it being more about a heart change and being a universal religion. You know, the in-groups and out-groups, while there still are in-groups and out-groups, in this religion of Christianity, the in-group is anyone who just accepts, you know, accepts forgiveness. So I think that those are some aspects that make it particularly attractive. And I think that they were really a community. When you look at the early Christian church, they worked together, they shared everything, they helped people, and uh, for those reasons, I think it was very attractive. The, the, Christian, the Christian church that you see today, do you, or do you think there's a, uh, a really troubling deficit of having thought about these things? I, I definitely uh, think so, and that was one of the hardest things for me when I was struggling with these questions, but, uh, but still thought of myself as a Christian is that I did not find any people who were really struggling with these questions or really struggle with them the same way I did, you know, because for me it was, I got to the point where I have uh, a cousin who's a very strong Christian and he goes out and evangelizes all the time. And so kind of my turning point was, if I'm really a Christian and nothing in this earth matters, and I really believe that, you know, evangelism and saving people for Christ should be my ultimate goal all the time. And I was like, so I want to make sure this is really true before I like really start doing that and changing my life entirely. And 
yeah, I don't think that other people I shared that struggle I, I, on the same level that I did. I think it's more along the lines of they sometimes question, is this really true? But it's never, it's never really a question of am I going to change the way I live my life fundamentally. They don't ever really question it, in my opinion. You sound like Penn Jillette there. You heard that Penn Jillette yeah. uh, clip about if you actually believe this stuff, I'm offended that you wouldn't try to evangelize me. Because if you think I'm going to hell, you should be trying to spread it. Right. right? You should be trying to spread the gospel. One of the other things I wanted to get to was uh, the argument from design. So I want to get there here in just a moment. And how you just look at because you you've done some of this, you've done some of the science, just how you how you view the universe. But there was one more thought from something you said that I wanted to get to, uh, and it was here's here is my fear for those that fall away from faith sometimes, that the faith that I'm not, I'm not saying this is the case for you by the way. I'm saying this generally. I think I was brought up on a version of Christianity that wasn't the biblical one. Uh, it, it wasn't a pure one. It was an Americanized one. Uh, it was a Westernist one that wasn't faithful to Scripture. So I would just ask if you would grant this. That there's a possibility that the Christianity you, uh, you offset here isn't the real one. That there might be an actual true Christianity that you might still yet discover. Is that, is that a, possi- a possibility uh, out there to you? Sure. That's because I think the certainly a I think that's the case for a lot of folks. They're, they are practicing a Christianity that doesn't exist. They've made one up. They've made up a Christianity that has some of the Jesus parts they like. They do away with the Jesus parts they don't like, uh, and uh, whatever they're practicing, it's it's not the one Jesus gave us. It's not that one. Um, okay, so we have to take another break here in about thirty seconds. Uh, I want to get into the design thing, and then if there's anything you'd want to push me up against the wall with rhetorically, I'd be glad to do that because we got, so we got some more show to fill. Uh, so we'll be back with more uh, with Nathan McDowell from Clemson University here in just a moment. We're going to talk argument of from design, looking at the earth, and, what, and if it, it, it turned out just so, why did it turn out just so? I have a feeling I know where that conversation is going, uh, but we will see when we come back. Again, always, if you would, share the show. SoundCloud, iTunes, Apple Podcast, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. Find me, Corey Truax. We'll be back with more of the Corey Truax Show in just a moment. Stick with us. Welcome back to the final segment of this week's Corey Truax Show. It is going by quickly with lots of fun. We are talking with uh, from Clemson University, talking of faith and reason. So maybe we should call this episode the faith and reason episode. We are talking with Mr. Nathan McDowell. Hello, sir. All right, so we're going to move to the argument from design here in just a moment. I had one more Bart Ehrman thing. I wonder if you would be willing to agree with me on this. Here's something Bart Ehrman does that gets my nerves. He talks about the 10,000 textual variants in the manuscripts, and it sounds terrifying. I remember the first time I heard him say it. I was mad. I was angry, not at Bart Ehrman. I was angry that no one ever taught me that. I was angry that no Christian came along and said, did you know that our scriptures came from something that had 10,000 textual, thousands of textual variants in the manuscripts? I was straight up angry that no one ever taught me that. But then I look at them, and the textual variants are all grammar and punctuation have nothing to do with doctrine. And it's, to me, it feels like a parlor trick. It feels like uh, a circus trick. Is that, is that a fair criticism of Art Ehrman? Absolutely. Okay, just checking on that one. All right, <laughs> so argument from design. Here's how it goes. A Christian would say to the unbeliever, but, but Nathan... Look at the earth. It is just so. It has just the exact right tilt. It has just the right, uh, I don't know, whatever we're breathing in right now, that stuff is perfect for our bodies, and uh, we're a perfect distance from the sun, and Jupiter's out in outer space sucking up asteroids sometimes instead of hitting earth. It seems that we, the earth was made just perfectly, 
don't you see that has to be a designer? So what do you, what have your thoughts been on that as you've worked through it? Okay, so I have a lot of thoughts on this. Great. Um, one is that I do think that, so the probability has certain levels to it, but first let's say the probability is very low. Um, I still think that for me as an individual, out of the infinite possibilities that could have resulted in this universe, God being only one of those would make that, and a specific configuration or a specific, you know, a type of God would be infinitesimally improbable. So even if that probability level of the earth ending up how it is is really low, I still think the probability of there being a God by the nature of like how Christianity describes it to be lower. Um, the second thing that I would say is that it's very improbable depending on like what, what level you're talking about. So any specific configuration is infinitely improbable, you know, the exact sure. space, that's right? So then you have to talk about, so what? what exact level are we talking about here? And in my opinion, it is in fact very likely, and this is the opinion of, of many uh, cosmologists and scientists, that life would occur given the time the universe has been around, been the incredibly vast space of the universe, given, the, given those two incomprehensibly massive dimensions, it is actually likely that life would occur. Now, that it would occur on this planet in this way, that is unlikely, but that it would happen, I do think is likely. So complexity, the answer to complexity is time and space. Is that a fair way to sum that up? Because yeah. I don't want to be unfair. No, that's a fair way to sum it up. Okay, so because com- the Christian argument is, how do you account for complexity? The argument back is, given given enough time, given enough space. So I'm going to push on it just a little bit. For sure. And you tell me how you would respond. So I've heard that argument before, and here's how I've heard. I can't remember who did it this way. This is not mine. I can't take credit for it. Uh, he said, you know, if you put in all the ingredients to pick something, pick a cake, pick an iPhone, I don't care. Uh, you put it in a box, you shake it up. Is there any amount of time that would ever get it to the iPhone? Is there any amount of time that would ever get it to that level of complexity? And so is the argument there? Yes. Eventually, complexity would come if you give it enough time and enough variation. So it's hard to grasp an infinite time scale. I don't think so in that specific case, but and I'm going to bring in energy here. So I think the difference there is there's not enough variation of situation. So the context that you're talking about, you're shaking it up in a bag. So the bag is the exact same system within which that change could occur. Okay. So the difference I would say in the case of the universe is that there is a, there's, you know, we have a lot of different elements on the periodic table. There's a lot of different states that the universe can be in. And so in a certain specific configuration, it could occur. And there are certain configurations, for example, um, I think shaking up an iPhone in a bag where order probably will not occur. So that would be my response to okay. that is I don't think that captures the variance in also the state of the universe that occurs that could make it possible. I actually think that's a rational response. Um, I've not heard that one either. Um, okay, so complexity is solved by get, give it enough time. You disagree if you want. I think both sides of that, of cosmology, because I definitely see design as compelling. I see the human body, uh, especially once we were able to map the genome. That specifically, once we got to the genome, I went, yeah, that is, someone did that. That is not by random chance. I think that that argument and the, well, there's enough time and space are at least equally rational. Let me ask it, I'll ask it this way. The person who does look at the universe and go, Sheesh, that's complex. Someone had to do that. Is that at least a rational response to complexity? I do think that that is a a reasonable response okay. to have. Um, 
For me, uh, you know, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of people get annoyed with where I set my epistemological bars, but I just don't like to accept things because of how it seems to me. You know, we, I think because we're humans, we have a very intuitive sense that anything created has a creator. And I just, in my opinion, I think that that is just applying human intuition to a very complex scientific question where intuition wasn't really made to function. Two quick thoughts. Um, You just gave us the word of the day. Word of the day, epistemological. It has to do how we know what we know. Is that how you would define that word? Well done, sir. (laughs) Uh, Number two I thought I had there was, it is this. So do do you consider it out of bounds when thinking about the thinking about the creation of the universe if you include a supernatural actor you're immediately outside like you, we can't consider that because it's not observable you cannot consider that possibly when you're thinking about the beginning of the universe so i think that that is possible okay but i do not think there's any way to verify it it's an unfalsifiable claim so i think you're right. so for me it's it's the same as we live in a simulation you know like yeah. that's possible sure but I'm not going to conduct my life in any way based on it. There's no way to verify it. There's no way to know. I'm going to act like we don't. And really quick, that's becoming a more popular thing. E- yes. I think Elon Musk thinks that. I think Elon Musk thinks, or Ray Kurzweil, the guy from Google. Yeah. I think Google, th- that guy thinks we're living in a supercomputer. I know Elon Musk does, yeah. And <laughs> that Ray Kurzweil guy is just weird. Just a weird dude. So is what you think here, is this, are we talking about multiverse right now? And I'm not saying the word. Are we, are we talking about multiverse? So I think that all those claims are the same type of epistemological flaws, in my opinion. So let me tell you, I was, I was actually a deist for a really long time because of not the teleological argument, but the, the argument from design, but yes. the cosmological argument. Um, I was like, you know, anything that has a beginning has to have a cause. Universe had to have a cause. It was outside the universe. It transcended the boundaries of time and space. The best thing to call that would be God, right? So I was very sympathetic to that for a while. Um, I hated simulation theory, hated multiverse theory because you're applying information from inside a system to extrapolate outside of that, you know, and like if our universe is a simulation, it has absolutely no bearing on outside of it because it's a purely fabricated universe. So I had, I had issues there. And then I was like, does that argument apply to why I think there was some entity that can reasonably described as God in our human language? Does the same flaw apply? And in my opinion, it it does, because I I think that the laws of logic and the information that we have are confined to the space and the system in which we derive them in, which would be this universe. As best we can understand right now, this is not me arguing, by the way. I'm about to ask you an actual question to see if you you know the answer. Uh, Is it our understanding right now that the universe is currently expanding? Is it still getting bigger? Yes. Okay. And so I have – this is a genuine question. I'm not trying to be argumentative. Uh, so I go back to uh, the grand show of the 2000s, The Big Bang Theory. And the, it opens with, our whole universe was in a hot, dense space, or a hot, dense something. Uh, and then 14 billion years ago, expansion started wait, right? And so it's been expanding forever. So if we rewind the tape and watch it not expand, not expand, not expand, not expand, was there ever a time that the matter that makes up the universe didn't exist, or do you think it has always existed? So I don't think it always existed. My opinion is that causality, although it seems like there are some places around us all the time, like in quantum physics, you know, which is describing the fundamental reality of our universe, that causality doesn't necessarily always apply. But it seems like causality in almost every sphere we've encountered so far, except for quantum physics for some reason, uh, there's a lot of debate about why that is, applies. So if you apply causality up to the point where the universe began, Uh, which they do think it began at the Big Bang. I don't think it always existed. I think at that point, the conclusion that we can come to is at the moment of the Big Bang, there was something, and there was the Big Bang. 
And I think that's all you can say. I don't think you can say anything about before. I don't think you can say, because then you're extending the bounds of the universe. And this is my personal opinion, and I don't know if other people, you know, I might be coming out of left field with this theory, but I think that at the instant of the Big Bang, there was also another thing that, pre that predicated huh. the Big Bang. And then I think that's as far as um, our human laws of logic can take us. So one, one more, I think, related to this. Just, I'm, I'm curious when you see the uh, the evidence of what's is being called the Cambrian explosion. This is a little more evo evolutionary. For those that don't know, and I have to make the assumption, you and I and like four other people have heard of the Cambrian explosion <laughs> because maybe we're nerds. Uh, the Cambrian explosion is the idea that in the fossil record that there was very little, and then out of nowhere, there's a bunch of stuff that we recognize in the right. fossil record. And so Christians have made the argument that this is the moment of creation. So you have a lot of nothing, and then there's everything we think of. So when you see the Cambrian explosion, how have you processed through that? Yeah, so I have a couple of responses to that. I think one is that, you know, I believe in evolution. At that point, um, the types of organisms that would fossilize just hadn't evolved yet. They were soft. They were squishy. You know, you had a lot of invertebrates. You have things that don't fossilize well because bones and hard parts fossilize well. And so I think that, and, and this is still an open question. You know, scientists don't know exactly why the Cambrian explosion happened. But I think part of it is definitely encompassed by that, by the fact that it was mostly invertebrates and then we've evolved things that, uh, lend themselves to fossilizing more effectively. And I think the second thing would be if you accept the creationist account of creation, that everything was created at the same time, um, the fossils would just be dispersed randomly. And while there are certainly some gaps and certainly some things that uh, can't be explained um, or we're working on explaining currently, you know, that, that applies to any scientific theory. I think there's a remarkable amount of linearity from simplicity to complexity and from old to new that we see in the fossil record from little organisms to big ones that get increasingly complex that just couldn't be explained. So, because it would be, it would be random and we're nowhere close to randomness. There are certain unexplainable aspects, but we see a very linear trend from old to new and simplicity to complexity. The humility with which you just said all that, the humility with which you just said there's still things we're working on. We're not, we're not totally figured out. Do you think the secularist argument would be better served by that attitude than the one it has? Um, I do think so. I mean, that's why I, I try and, and have this attitude. Uh, I definitely think yeah, the, it would be. Because the, the attitude, especially again, the internet, is what partly breaks our, uh, our, our discourse because there's, not, there's no human to look at and realize you're talking to another human. Is basically, you're all idiots. You're all morons, and the fact that you could possibly think that uh, everything came together at one time uh, is is insane. But with that humility, I think you, I don't know, just telling you, there might be some uh, some actual effectiveness there. Um, so let me ask you this one. We have about five minutes left. I have said for a long time, uh, let's go with five or six years, because I used to be much more of an apologetics guy. Like, it was something I spent a lot of time on, taught a lot of it in church. I have come to the conclusion that Christian apologetics, what sort of what I've been doing here, going through some of the arguments for the faith, is not evangelistic in nature. It is actually for Christians. It is for the Christian to go, yeah, the culture's telling me I'm an idiot, but it's not that it's not idiotic. There's reason here. Would you also agree that apologetics in nature is for the church? It's really not to try to convert anybody. 
Yes, I would, I would definitely agree with that. I was very into apologetics as well. And one of the frustrating things that I encountered was that nobody makes the arguments that you're trained against in apologetics. You know, for example, I think there's this beast of moral relativism, and this isn't even confined to Christianity. I think that lots of people just talk about this bane of moral relativism. It's, there's no morals at all. It's the worst thing ever. There's absolutely no truth. And the reality is most people's positions are more nuanced than that, philosophically and throughout history. And I think that you're a lot of times you attack a beast that's not there. It's like somebody says everything's relative, and then in apologetics you're supposed to respond, is that relative? Yeah. Like, you know, never had an opportunity to do that. Would have yeah. loved to. But <laughs> I think that that's, it's, a, it's a caricature of yeah. people's real positions. For example, my position that there are just certain areas of human agreement that we should work towards, that I as an individual think we should work towards, and I as an individual think are good. Um, but, yeah. Okay. One more final question for you. Since you grew up in the church and all that, I do want to ask this question. Uh, just, just to, uh, something that gets on my nerves sometimes is I think folks in secularism, you're not one of them. They tell me what I believe and they have no idea. They are quoting stuff at me. They have no idea what the Christian doctrine is, but they read one guy on the internet that said the one thing, and now they think they're an expert on Christianity. They don't do it to Islam. They don't do it to the Mormons, but they do it to us. Like They think they're experts on what we believe. So I just wanted to get, uh, if a Christian asked you, so what is the, what is the quote, let's go with, uh, what's the gospel? What do Christians believe about life and afterlife? What, what do you think we think? Okay, so I mean, I think the fundamental doctrine of what I think Christianity is, is really about the grace of Jesus and forgiveness. And that, you know, we were all sinful. We have original sin. We were born sin at birth. And that Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. Okay. And um, with that, he paid the penalty for our death. On the opposite end of that, so... What do you think we and Christianity think wrong about the the secularist? We have about two minutes. What do I think? Okay. Um, So I think that there's a push against atheists. It's like they don't stand for anything. And I, I think that that's, that that's true. You know, I think there are some people who try and make atheism into a movement. I don't, I don't think it should be a movement. I think like, it's just, you know, most people believe in uh, the theist position, and I just happen to be someone who lacks you know, that position. So I think that um, one thing that I would like for Christians to understand is it's not anti-Christianity, albeit, you know, the new atheist, and many sure. people turn it into anti-Christianity. It's really just the claim that I don't feel like the rational... It's not, uh, there's not enough evidence for me to rationally accept Christianity, is okay. my only opinion. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the Christians get wrong thinking through uh, and talking with secularists, yeah. right? Okay, so as we start to uh, call, uh, bring this down, I have one more question for you, and if you have any more for me, I'd be glad to. At least the way it's been presented here, if, if folks do the work, do you think there's a way to be, is it still possible to be a Christian, to be a rational human being, to have come to some conclusions and, that, and not think, well, that, Christians are morons? Is that, where are you on that? I do, and I think the way you've conducted this interview and kind of that point that you've been um, talking about is very, very similar to Platinga. I don't know if you know, he's a Christian yeah. philosopher, and yes. he just taught, he makes the very conservative claim that Christian belief is warranted. And I think I can certainly see how, not, not that it's true necessarily, yeah. but that it is logically true that it's, it's a warranted, rational belief. And I think I can agree with that. Now that we are running out of time, let me ask you this. Would you have any interest in doing this again and maybe on other topics? Absolutely. Because I'd this was to. a blast, man. Oh, yeah. I so had a great time. Thank you for coming and doing it. Um, that was Nathan McDowell from Clemson University. Good luck on what, junior or senior year is coming up? Junior year. Good luck on junior year. Uh, so let me give this one encouragement to the rest of you, and then we're going to call it a day. And uh, here we go. SoundCloud. 
iTunes, Apple Podcast, over at Anchor. This show is going to be in lots of places. You have no excuse for not listening to this show. I provided you in every possible way. So go listen to it, share it with others, listen back to it, maybe consider some of these arguments, and really, really highly encouraged and very appreciated if you would tell someone else about the show. Uh, we'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love. <laughs>